Well, we are continuing our series in the book of Ephesians this morning. When we started, I indicated that part of the point of studying the book of Ephesians is to remind us of the purpose of the church. Knowing God's purpose for the church will help to ensure that we are pursuing the purposes for which we have been, in Paul's words, created in Christ Jesus. So many churches today have lost sight of that purpose. So many churches are intent on reaching the masses that they tailor their services to reach unbelievers when the church service is actually for the believer and for the glory of God. So many spend time, talent, and treasures on programs and pragmatics with no consideration for the centrality of the word of God and its power. So many churches today are filled with seat warmers or worse, membership role warmers, those who are simply coming because that's what they've always done, because they give and they feel their investment in the church gives them the right to determine what does or does not happen. Or again, those who got their names on the roll because they professed faith in Christ years ago, while they have no new life abiding in them and show it by their deeds. We as The Catonsville Baptist Church should not be that kind of church. We should be the kind of church that Ephesians and the Word of God as a whole describes. And again, that is why we are endeavoring to study this beautiful book. So what has the book of Ephesians described so far? What is the church? Well, we began our series with the first two verses of Ephesians and an introduction to the letter Paul referred to himself there as an apostle. He writes to the saints at Ephesus and prays that grace and peace would be there. That's really a summary of the whole letter. The church are those upon whom the grace and peace of God has been poured out lavishly. Next, we looked at what is probably the longest sentence in Ephesians. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 14 There Paul discussed the complexity of the Lord's plan of redemption for the church. This plan involves all three members of the Trinity, spans from what we would consider eternity past all the way to eternity future. This plan is described in the text as a blessing that God has bestowed on his people, a blessing which involves every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places poured out in Christ Jesus. The Father himself selected us before the foundation of the world. We were selected to be holy and to be a part of the family of God. The Son sacrificed himself for us. In order to complete our adoption, a sacrifice needed to be made. Our sin issue needed to be dealt with. We could not become children of God on our own. Christ died for us. His death as our Redeemer meant the forgiveness of sins. Moreover, the Son who is Redeemer was also raised as ruler over all. The Holy Spirit of God has sealed us. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is varied. He is the instrument of the new birth. He also seals us after we believe as a down payment, which guarantees our final redemption. In other words, the church are those blessed by God, selected, sacrificed, and sealed in the Holy Spirit. In the next section, Paul prays for the church. The salvation of God is grand, majestic, glorious. Paul prays particularly for the church that she would truly know the hope of this calling. 
the glorious inheritance that God has in the saints and what Paul calls the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. This power is the same power that was at work when God raised Jesus Christ from the dead and seated him in the heavenly places above all rule and authority. In other words, the church are those who know that the power of God is presently working in the church. From there in chapter 2, Paul will go on to explain exactly how this power is at work in the church. In the first part of chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, the power of God is at work in the church to give her new life. This is that resurrection power at work to raise spiritually dead men to new life by uniting them with Jesus in his resurrection. This is the grace of God at work to save his people, to accomplish his purposes, for having a people set apart for his good works as his workmanship. In the second half of chapter 2, which we looked at last week, we saw that the power of God is at work in bringing together people from every tribe and tongue and nation, both Jews and Gentiles, to be a part of his church, to be a part of this workmanship. While the world strives to manufacture peace, Jesus Christ is our peace. In Christ, God has made us all into one new man and has reconciled us together to God. In other words, a church are those in whom the power of God is at work. It is those to whom God has poured out both, again, his grace and his peace. Thus, we come to chapter 3 of Ephesians in our text for this morning. Again, Paul is continuing to show us how the power of God is at work in the church. He is at work giving his people new life. He's at work bringing them together into one new man to form the church. In our text for this morning, we see that God is at work building his church through the apostolic ministry. In this first part of chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, Paul will discuss this truth that God builds his church through the apostolic ministry and specifically by discussing Paul's role as an apostle. Well, if you haven't, go ahead and turn there. Ephesians chapter 3, I'll read verses 1 through 13 for us this morning, and then we'll look at the text together in greater detail. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written in brief. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. 
So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. Let's pray again. Father, thank you for your word. As Jesus prayed in John 17, you sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. We thank you for your word and pray as we come before your word this morning that you would give us listening hearts, that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from your word, wonderful truths from your word, that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, again, in the previous section, Paul commented that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Here he's going to explain that a little bit further. God is building the church through the ministry of the apostles. A simple outline for this section. In chapter 3, verse 1, the apostles were set apart to suffer for the gospel. In chapter 3, verses 2 through 6, the apostles were set apart as stewards of the gospel. And finally, in verses 7 through 13, they were set apart for the spread of the gospel. They were set apart to suffer. They were set apart as stewards. They were set apart for the spread of the gospel. Well, let's look at that first point. God is building his church by setting apart the apostles to suffer for the gospel. Look again at verse 1. Paul says there, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. And we'll stop there. The for this reason looks back to the previous section. Again, God is building his church by uniting people from every tribe and tongue and nation, by uniting both Jew and Gentile into one new man, one new race, into the church of Jesus Christ, where there was previously animosity between people, there is now peace in the church. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. That's what he's going to say. Because all of those things are true in the last section, because of the fact that you're building your church, Paul is going to pray for the church once again. We had a prayer earlier that the, the church would know the power of God, but now he's going to pray for something different. And we'll get into that the next time. But before he prays, which he actually doesn't begin praying until verse 14, he takes a little bit of a, a, little bit of a sidetrack because he wants to explain something a little further. Instead of getting into his prayer, he says again, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. In other words, he's calling attention to his imprisonment. Now, why might he do that? I think the reason why he's calling attention to his imprisonment is made clear in verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering, he says. If they knew that he was writing to them from prison that he was imprisoned in the course of preaching the gospel, they might become discouraged. And so in this section, he's trying to encourage them by letting them know that his imprisonment is not an indication that things are out of control, but to the contrary, that he was called for this very purpose. Look again at the text. He says, there are two reasons why I was imprisoned. I'm imprisoned a prisoner for Christ Jesus, he says, I'm also a prisoner on behalf of you Gentiles. 
Well, what does it mean that he's a prisoner for Christ Jesus? Again, Paul began this letter by making clear that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. I think we talked about that earlier. An apostle is literally a sent one. That's what it means to be an apostle. He was sent out as a representative for Jesus. The apostles were sent by Jesus Christ to take the gospel to all nations. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, before Jesus ascended, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now we know that Paul was not one of the original 12, but he was also called for this purpose. In Acts 9, after he was blinded on the road to Damascus, and we know that Paul was on the road to Damascus to try to continue persecuting the church. After he was blinded on the road to Damascus, Jesus appeared to a man named Ananias. Ananias was then given the task of laying hands on Paul so that he would receive his sight again as he had been blinded by the shining glory of the Lord on the road. And when the Lord appeared to Ananias to tell him to go to Paul, he said concerning Paul in Acts chapter 9, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Here the Lord indicated that Paul was a chosen instrument to take his name, another way of saying that he would preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, to kings in Israel. And Paul understood this to be his ministry. He introduced himself frequently as an apostle in his letters, Romans chapter 1, Corinthians letters, the letter to the Galatians here in Ephesians, the letter to Colossians, the letter to Timothy, letter to Titus. He acknowledged that his calling was a bit different than the rest of the 12, also in 1 Corinthians 15. There, after talking about the gospel that he, off, that he shared with the believers there at Corinth, he says that Christ appeared frequently to others. He appeared to Cephas in verse 5 and then to the 12. He says in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 15, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, he says concerning himself, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Furthermore, he made clear that his calling as an apostle was primarily to the Gentiles in accord with Jesus' words about him to Ananias. Romans chapter 11, verse 13. I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. 1 Timothy 2, 7. For this reason I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. They'll say in our text, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, to me, though I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul was called to be an apostle, a sent one, a representative of Christ, a representative to bear the name and authority of Christ, to do his will. And Paul was particularly called as an apostle to the Gentiles. But the words of Jesus concerning Paul in that passage in Acts didn't cease there. Again, after saying that Paul was his chosen instrument to bear his name to the Gentiles, he also said, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul was called as an apostle and Paul was called to suffer and suffer he did. He speaks of his ministry in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He said this also. Verse 23. 
Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman, with far greater labors, far more imprisonment, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times, this is Paul's testimony of his life, five times I received at the hand of the Jews forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I, I was adrift in the sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? and I am not weak. Who's made to fall, and I am not indignant? Paul said he dealt with a lot in his life as a believer, as an apostle. But that didn't matter. All that mattered to him was accomplishing his calling to preach as Christ commanded. He knew that suffering was a part of the package, and he gladly accepted it. Acts chapter 20, as Paul is getting ready to leave the Ephesian elders for the last time, he shares with them that he's going to Jerusalem, and he knows that there are going to be chains and imprisonment there. not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Verse 24 of Acts chapter 20, he says, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only that I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He says, I don't account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. The only thing that I want to do, the most important thing to me, is finishing my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus. Again, in our text, Paul said, I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Really, this is a twofold designation. He's a prisoner in the sense that he is bound to Christ. He is imprisoned by this calling that Christ has placed on his life. He has no ability to live life on his own, and really he doesn't want to. In his heart of hearts, in this new heart that he's been given by Christ, this new life that he has been given, Paul found a desire to be bound to Jesus and to him alone, to serve him with his life, knowing that there was no greater joy. Again, I don't consider my life of any account as dear to myself. All I want to do is finish my course in the ministry I received from Jesus. When we went through the book of Philippians. We read Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. Paul says there very simply, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But he's also a prisoner of Christ Jesus because he's literally in chains, literally sitting in prison for the cause of Christ, for the sake of the gospel. As an apostle, he went about preaching the gospel, and people didn't like that until he was imprisoned for the sake of Christ. Paul is a prisoner 
of Christ Jesus also, he says, on behalf of you Gentiles, and that should be clear. He was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles, and so his preaching was directed to the Gentiles, and that frequently led him to trouble. Yes, I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus, but this is also on behalf of you Gentiles for your sake, so that you might be able to know the gospel. Paul is saying, I was called as an apostle in order for you to be able to hear the message. You remember when he mentioned at the end of chapter 2 that his preaching, that preaching was done both near and far. He says the preaching that was done to those who were far, meaning those who were separate from the commonwealth of Israel, those who were not Israelites, he's like, that was me. I was a part of that. I was a part of preaching to those who were far off. Today, we support missionaries through the IMB, the International Mission Board, is really the primary reason for which the Southern Baptist Convention exists. Churches are Southern Baptist churches because they partner together for the purpose of missions, for the purpose of church planting. We cannot all go, but we can all participate in sending some. Some go in support roles to the field. Others go to train on the field, while others still go to blaze trails. They go to those unreached people groups to places where the gospel has not yet been preached. Again, we preach for the, we pray for those unreached peoples every Sunday morning. But before these modern-day missionaries who op- were opening up new mission fields today, there were the first-entry apostles. Again, when Paul said earlier that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, he meant that they are the foundation. They are the original trailblazers. They are the ones who were called to first go forth with a message so that the church would be established, and it was often established with their blood and through their suffering. Now, we're not all called to be apostles, but we are all called to be preachers of the gospel, and we are all called to suffer for that. Again, Matthew 28 applies to all of us. As they went forth, the disciples were to not only baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but they were also to teach all that Christ commanded them. And that includes going forward and preaching the gospel and making disciples. And so that still trickles down to us as a command. That's why we are to continue the process of making disciples of all nations. doesn't matter if they are near or far. And we're also called to suffer. Again, when we went through Philippians, the book of Philippians, we came across Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, a text which I would be glad to just gloss over. <laughs> In that text, Paul says, well, in the context, he's exhorting the church to let their manner of life be worthy of the gospel as they strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then he says in verse 29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. And he says, as you suffer, you'll be engaged in the same conflict that I have, that same conflict that he voiced earlier in verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But you don't get there. You don't get to having that perspective on life that to live is Christ and to die is gain unless you first suffer for Christ's sake. Well, again, God is building his church. His power is at work in building his church. And we see that through the apostolic ministry as they were called to suffer. We recognize that as much as they were called to suffer for the gospel ministry, so are we. 
Let's look at the next point. As God was building his church, he set apart the apostles as stewards for the gospel. That's verses 2 through 6. Again, Paul says, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, verse 2, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul says this mystery was given as a stewardship. I was called to suffer as an apostle, but I was also called as a steward. He says, I'm assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. The gospel ministry is a stewardship. The word translated as stewardship in the ESV there indicates the responsibility of management. Often stewards were employees who were given responsibility to manage some aspect of a business on behalf of an owner or else they were given a household to manage on behalf of an, uh, the household, um, the head of the house. You think about someone like Joseph in, in Potiphar's home and the role that he played there. The point is that he, as an apostle, was given a stewardship. He was given a responsibility to manage an aspect of the grace of God. We've talked about the grace of God frequently in this letter. In chapter 2, the term grace was used to refer to the whole context of salvation. Well, God has given Paul, as an apostle, the stewardship, the administrative responsibility over an aspect of his grace, his work of redemption, the redemption that was planned from before the world began and is in effect today. There was an aspect of this grace given to Paul, and he says it was given to him for you, for you Gentiles. Look again at verse 3. What was given to him as a steward was the mystery. And this is another term that we frequently discussed, and we'll make it, he'll make it clear as we go forward, as we get to chapter, verse 6. But here he says this mystery was made known to him by revelation, and he said that he'd already written to them briefly about it. And this likely refers to an, an earlier letter that he wrote that maybe we just don't have, or probably just what he's already said to them in the letter about the mystery. But he was given the responsibility to be a steward of this mystery by means of revelation, special revelation, a message given particularly to him from God. Moving forward in verse four, he says parenthetically, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, but now has been revealed. He says, I have insight into this truth. I have insight into this mystery, insight that others have not previously known. And this insight was given to me by God. Again, God is in the process of revealing this truth to his holy apostles and prophets. And here again, we see this reference to the apostles and prophets earlier we saw it in chapter 2 verse 20 there Paul made clear that the foundation of the church is the apostles and prophets it is the design of God that the apostles and prophets would form the foundation of the church and therefore he gives them special insight into what he is doing into his plan I mentioned before that there's a great, there was a great deal of consternation when the gospel started to go forth and the Gentiles put their faith in Christ. 
And they started receiving the promised Holy Spirit. Some people thought that it just wasn't right to share the same gospel with the Gentiles. But they couldn't really argue with the fact that it was a clear work of God. Paul was right in the middle of that discussion. There was special revelation given both to Peter and to Paul. And that special revelation became instrumental in helping the Jews to think rightly about what God was doing among the Gentiles. If you want a reference, you can look at Acts chapter 10 and 11, Acts chapter 15, and also Galatians 2. But God made clear to them by means of revelation that he was calling the Gentiles to faith in Christ just as he was calling the, Jew, the Jews. It was prophesied that the Spirit would be poured out on his people in the later days. And as the Jews were seeing that God was clearly pouring out his Spirit on them, and then they started to see that as the gospel was preached to the Gentiles, the Spirit was clearly being poured out on them also. <clears throat> God was doing something new, and therefore he made it known to his people by revelation that he was at work among the Gentiles as well. Well, he clarifies what the mystery is, verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's just a statement of fact. This mystery, this previously hidden truth that was revealed by God through the Spirit to the apostles and prophets, this mystery which we discussed last week in detail is that the church would be made up of people from every tribe and tongue and nation, of both Jews and Gentiles. Again, this is what Jesus prayed for in John chapter 17. He prayed for his disciples, but he also prayed for those who would believe in him through their word, is what he says in verse 20. And you know who those people are? That's us. That's everyone who's come after the ministry of the apostles, after the last apostle died. Everyone who has believed since then has believed through their word, through the text of Scripture. And Jesus was praying for us when he prayed in John 17, 20. And he prays particularly for them that they may be one. And he says that as they are one, the world will know that the Father sent him. Well, again, Paul, as an apostle, was a steward of this truth. And speaking of this mystery, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. In other translations, it says they are, the treasure is in earthen vessels. The reference is to the weakness and frailness of his own body. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. You'll say, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our bodies. Death works in us, but life in you. Paul took his role as a steward seriously, and he viewed what he stewarded as a treasure. And by comparison, his life was merely a clay jar, a weak, frail, broken jar of clay. And being struck with that truth, he acknowledged that the reason why he was left in this world as a Christian, the reason why he was left 
And he still walked about in this fallen, weak flesh was not for his own sake, but it was so that the gospel would continue to go forth. And not only so that it would go forth, but that it would go forth in power and that it would be clear that the work of the gospel was a work of God and not of men. Do you understand that? We walk about in jars of clay, weak, frail, broken bodies. We experience that every single day. And as we get older, we feel it more. When we get sick or we encounter some sort of disease or ailment or affliction, we feel that more and more. Our bodies are weak and sick and frail and prone to death. Why has God left us in this state? He's left us in this state so that the beauty of the treasure that is within us as believers, the treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that it would shine all the brighter. As we go forward into the world in these weak, frail jars of clay, it is clear that we're not doing the work, that there's nothing special about us but that all of the power and all of the goodness is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ and in his power to save. And we're not all called to be apostles, but we are all called to be stewards of the grace of God. And I think that's pretty clear through Paul's example. He also says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, There he refers to the church as the household of God, the church of the living God, a pillar and support of the truth. And that's who we are as a church. Again, we're not just here for ourselves. We're here to be a pillar and support of the truth, to uphold the truth of God. Again, so that the truth of God might be clearly seen through us and that his power might be clearly seen through us. Well, again, moving forward, God has built his church with the apostles and prophets as its foundation. The apostles were set apart to suffer for the gospel. They were set apart as stewards of the gospel. Finally, they're set apart for the spread of the gospel, verses 7 through 13. Of this gospel, Paul says there, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul was made a minister according to the power of God. Verse 7. Again, he says, I was made a minister. We understand what that means, right? Earlier he talked about this stewardship. The word that was used there referred to a function. Someone is given a stewardship. They're entrusted with something to manage. They're giving something to administer. In this text, he refers not to the stewardship itself, not to the mystery, but to his role. He was made a minister. That word is the same word that we get our term deacon from. 
He is a servant to carry out the stewardship entrusted to him as a servant with all the duty and diligence required from a servant. Paul considered being made a servant a gift. It was a gift of God's grace. He's going to return to this idea of the gifts that God gives in chapter four. There again, he will talk about how God has given gifts to men, gifts to his church, gifts of the apostles and prophets to be the foundation to help to build up the church. He's given gifts to each individual member of Christ so that the church might be built up together as each person uses their gift. For now, Paul says the gift that I was given was a gift of being a servant over the stewardship of God's mystery. The gift that he was given to be a servant was given, quote, by the working of his power. Again, this whole discussion began back in chapter one, verses 19 and 20, when God says that when Paul says that there is immeasurably great power at work in those who believe. And again, that power is at work through the resurrection life he grants to his people. It's at work through the peace he brings to his people within the church. And it's at work here as God is building the church through the apostolic ministry. Again, what was Paul made to do? How was he to carry out the administration of his stewardship? What grace was he given by God? What gift of grace was he given for the church? He was called to preach to me, though I am the very least of all the saints. Verse eight, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ. This is the grace that was given to him. He was set apart to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, what Paul calls the unsearchable riches of Christ. There are so many different ways that the truth of the gospel is referred to. It is the grace of God. It is his mercy. It is about his steadfast love. It is his choice, his selection of us. Here, Paul calls it the unsearchable riches of Christ. Again, people may complain that God has never done anything for them. They may complain that God doesn't do anything for them now, and they thumb their noses at God because they don't feel like their needs are being met. Or when they pray, when they've never prayed to God a single other day in their life, They've never submitted to the will of God a single other day in their life. They pray, and if God doesn't answer, they automatically say, oh, well, God doesn't exist. He doesn't love me. He doesn't care. When the reality is that God has done and is doing so much for humanity today, right now, and he's doing it here in the church. He's pouring out the unsearchable riches that he has available at his disposal in the church. This is where God is at work. This is how God is moving. This is where God's peace is. This is where joy is from God. This is where the love of God is being directed right now in the church, not the physical building, in the people whom he's creating through faith in Jesus Christ. Again, Paul calls it, preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ. I think this is both the gospel, again, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, as well as everything else that was taught. This is everything. In other words, all of the the apostles' teaching can be rightly described as the preaching of the unsearchable riches of Christ. Again, we talked about the apostles being foundational to the church, and we recognize that the heart of this truth is that their teaching is all about Christ. 
It is the New Testament letters written by the apostles or their helpers in addition to the Old Testament background that forms the doctrine of the church. Their teaching is foundational to all of what we are and all of what we do as the church. In our text, again, Paul says he was particularly called to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ to the Gentiles. He goes on to say that this grace was given to him, though I am the very least of all the saints. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, while I don't think the Lord would ever hold this over his head, I don't think the Lord would ever remind Paul of this fact. Paul never forgot that he was once a persecutor of the church. He mentioned in Philippians 3, as his zeal, a persecutor of the church. In 1 Timothy 1.13, he says, Formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent person. 1 Corinthians 15.9, again, he says, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. I'll just say that it's okay to acknowledge the weakness of your past. It's okay to acknowledge where you came from, but you cannot stay there. Even now, for those of you who are in Christ, it's okay to acknowledge when you fall, and you should, but you cannot stay there. You cannot wallow in self-pity or disgust, because if you are in Christ, then his grace is at work in you presently. And regardless of who you are, you are now a child of God who has been gifted, just as he gifted his apostles and prophets. You have been gifted for a purpose, and so you just need to get busy serving in that way. You need to get busy living out what God has gifted you to do. Now, this is not self-help, right? This is not believing yourself. (laughs) But we are not worthless, and we're not worthless because Christ died for us. He died for us, and he gifted us to be a part of his church. That's what our purpose is. Not for us to get out of life whatever we want, but it's for us to give what God has given us to give for his glory. Verses 9 and 10, Paul says, this grace was given to me to preach and to bring to light for everyone what was the plan of this mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Paul says, I was given grace to preach and through my preaching to reveal some things, to bring this mystery that others did not previously know, though certainly the God who created all things knew. But I am through my preaching to bring this mystery to light to be revealing the plan of this mystery. Already defined in verse 6 is the inclusion of the Gentiles. He says, I'm revealing this mystery through my preaching. And I'm revealing this mystery through my preaching so so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In other words, again, the grace of God that is given to people is more than just about them. The workmanship that God is building in the church is more than just about you and me. There's a greater story being told. There's a story being told to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God is displaying his handiwork, his manifold wisdom, not only to the world of humanity, but also to all of the created order, to the spiritual world around us. We got a glimpse of this in the book of Job, right? You see this this heavenly court and all of these angels kind of standing around and you see um, Satan Uh, the accuser walking about and and seeking someone to accuse and someone to point at God and say, look at that guy. The reason why he's he's obeying you and he's serving you is because you put a hedge of protection around him. And so we have this whole um, situation in the book of Job that just seems very bizarre and very strange. But the reality is that that's pointing to a fact that 
There's something greater going on in the world, in the cosmos, in the created order than you and I can ever see. But as we, in obedience to God, submit to his will, as we, in obedience to God, live in accord with his purposes, as we, in obedience to God, use the gift of grace that he's given us to serve him and to build up his church, to be about what he is about in this life, in this world today, building his church, as we do that, then we are instrumental in God declaring his glory to the cosmos. And God declaring, look at what I did in bringing together that group of knuckleheads. <laughs> that, that group of dirty, rotten, stinking sinners, those scoundrels. I brought them together. I gave them new life. I cleaned them up. I gifted them. And look at the way they're serving. Look at the way they're living now. Look at how God is at work. Look at my handiwork, God says. Paul says this is all about God's eternal purposes, all about his eternal purposes is working out in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And he says almost parenthetically that it is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, that we have boldness and access, access and confidence through him, through faith in him. And that's just a reminder to us that we do have boldness, access and confidence through faith in Jesus. Well, again, Paul was given a stewardship. He was made a servant. He was called to preach, to uncover previously hidden mystery, to display the manifold wisdom of God to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, all in accord with the eternal purposes of God. Again, this is a part of what God is doing. He's working out those eternal purposes. Paul concludes in verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering, which is for your glory. And this brings us full circle. Again, the reason why he takes this slight detour when he originally begins to discuss his prayer for them is to encourage them. He doesn't want them to be discouraged by the fact that he's been in prison. He says, I was called for this as an apostle, as a steward of the gospel. I was called to preach and to spread the gospel. And that involves suffering. This is all a part of the plan from the beginning. The plan of God and the purposes of God have not failed simply because there were suffering. Sometimes I think we forget that. We approach suffering as something to be avoided, and certainly we could, we should, if we can. We look at suffering and the difficulty that we endure as if it is a curse, or as if God is trying to get back at us, or as if God is ignoring us. But the reality is that suffering has always been a part of the plan. So as much as we may want it to, it may not always pass. It may not always be something that God is willing for you to pray away. Paul is an example of that, right? He prayed three times for the thorn in the flesh. Whatever that was, we don't know what it was. He said, I have a thorn in my flesh. It's something very painful to me that is in my life, and I'm praying. Paul the apostle, this Super spiritual saint of God, the guy who wrote most of the letters in the New Testament for us. He had a thorn in the flesh. He prayed that God would remove it. He was suffering in pain, but God said no. Why? Again, because my grace is sufficient for you. Because God wanted to make clear that the power that is at work as Paul goes and preaches and people come to faith, the power that is at work is not Paul's power. It's his. It's God's. 
And he shows that best as we, in our weakness, go forward in obedience and serving him. I mentioned earlier that the apostles are foundation in their ministry of preaching and teaching, but we have to acknowledge that they are also foundational in the example of their faithfulness to Christ. They desired above all else to see that the purposes of God went forth, to see that his church was built and established for his glory, no matter the cost. They saw themselves as his servants, his slaves, as having lives set apart for his purpose. They lived for Jesus. I wonder, is that how you live? We cannot walk away from a message like this without asking and answering that question. Do you understand that the way you live, your commitment to the church, your service and devotion to the building up of the church in spite of the difficulty is both how we walk in the apostles' footsteps and how God displays his manifold wisdom to the world and to the heavenly rulers? Did you know that you can make an actual difference in properly displaying the glory of God to the world. Your life, your giftedness as a member of Christ's church, again, not just being on roll, but your participation in being a functioning member of the church. One who sees their spiritual gift as a part of God's grace given to them for the building up of his church. Your participation and your using of your gifts directly has an impact on the magnification of the glory of God in this life, in this world. Even in the midst of your weakness, that is true, especially in the midst of your weakness. Again, we're not all called to be apostles, but we are all called to suffer. We are all called to be stewards of his grace. We are all called to see that the gospel goes forth. The church are those who, just as the apostles who are foundational members, the church are those who are committed to the building up of the body of Christ and the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, Catonsville Baptist Church, I challenge you today. I'll continue to urge you in this way in the future, and I'll continue to pray for us that we would be this kind of church, for there really is no other kind of church that we would be the kind of church who sees our calling in Christ, the gifts that he's given to each of us, the spiritual gifts, and especially the gospel that we are entrusted with, that we would see these for the treasure that they are, that we would live with all of our might to see that these are displayed to the world for his glory, that his word goes forth, and that his purposes in building the church are accomplished. May we agree with Paul and the apostles, not just in word, but also in deed to live as Christ, and to die is gain. Let us pray. Father, we thank you again for this day. We thank you for your word, which is truth, your word, which sanctifies us. And we pray now that you would help us to see the life of the apostles as much as we see their teaching, help us to see their life and the example of their life as foundational for how we ought to live as your people. Help us not to shrink away from serving you even if we should suffer and even though we will suffer in this life. Help us to see the stewardship that you've given us of your word as a treasure Help us to go forth with that stewardship 
so that the gospel might continue to go forth and you might continue to build your church in accord with your eternal purposes in Christ Jesus for your glory and the good of all. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.